I am Dr. Amanda Khan, clinical psychologist at Sage Integrative Health and research collaborator with the San Francisco VA and UCSF, and am the co-chair of the ISTSS Moral Injury SIG. Today's Trauma Talk podcast episode is a collaboration effort between the ISTSS Moral Injury and Complex Trauma SIGs, focusing on systemic betrayal. Over the past several years, we've increasingly seen the impact of failures of systems we trust to protect and care on individuals' psychosocial well-being. The consequence of these failures can lead to struggles that are central to both moral injury and complex trauma. This episode will explore the clinical issues that providers face on this topic through a discussion with complex trauma expert, Dr. Julian Ford, and moral injury expert, Dr. Valentina Storcheva. Dr. Ford is a board-certified clinical psychologist and professor of psychiatry and law at the University of Connecticut, where he directs two treatment and services adaptation centers in the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, the Center for Trauma Recovery and Juvenile Justice, and the Center for the Treatment of Developmental Trauma Disorders. Dr. Ford is past president of ISTSS and a fellow of the American Psychological Association. Dr. Valentina Storcheva is the founder and director of STEPS, a trauma-focused group practice in New York. She's also a senior psychologist at the Unified Behavioral Health Center for Military Personnel and Their Families, Northwell Health in New York. Dr. Storcheva has worked extensively within the field of trauma, from helping individuals heal from combat and sexual trauma to coping with the aftermath of natural disasters and to adapting trauma treatments for children with intellectual and developmental disorders as part of a National Child Traumatic Stress Network grant. Dr. Stoicheva is also the co-author of The Unconscious Theory, Research, and Clinical Implications, which recently won the Theory Book Award of the American Board and Academy of Psychoanalysis. Dr. Storcheva, Dr. Ford, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Dr. Khan. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so maybe we can just jump right in um, with this topic and maybe first defining for our listeners what systemic betrayal is. How are you both conceptualizing this construct? Um, oh, thank, thank you for the question, Amanda. Um, I think the way that I understand it is when a person's um, when when a person suffers uh, trauma or a danger to themselves, to their livelihood, or to their identity um, in a particularly meaningful way within a system that's a caregiving system that is um, unable or unwilling to address um, the problem, that is not supportive, that is in fact, not a caregiving system. Um, I see this a lot in my work with the military where, for example, a person may have suffered a trauma um, either as part of their service or military sexual trauma, for example, and the system is failing to address that or not addressing it adequately. Um, and yet the person cannot extricate themselves from this system because their livelihood depends on it. Um, I see it in working with survivors of, for example, sexual trauma within a context of a church, a religious organization. Again, 
there is a threat to both a sense of safety, but also a threat to the identity of the person or their livelihood or their well-being. Um, and by all means, Jill, please feel free to jump in. I think you have a, also a different angle and through many, many decades of working with people, you, you have seen a lot more than I have as well. That's a great introduction, Valentina. And all I would add is that uh, sometimes the, the system is not necessarily a caregiving system, but it's a system that, that people depend upon for their livelihood, like, like the military, um, and or their education, like a school system. So I've I've seen a number of individuals who've experienced systemic betrayal because of experiences of abuse that occurred while they were in a school, where mm -hmm. they expected, in this case, there should have been caregiving, and there there was not a response that actually prevented that from happening, let alone protected them or others and in the future. And I think that we just, we need to highlight that systemic betrayal really follows from the work of Dr. Jennifer Fried and her concept of betrayal trauma, which is really a, an, an essential concept in the traumatic stress field. And systemic betrayal can occur on an institutional basis, as we're talking about. It can occur on a, a smaller scale and still be just as powerful and uh, and problematic because it's really a it's a violation of the social contract and part of the social contract is that those who we work with and those who we learn with those who care for us and who we care for that we will all do no harm and in this case when systemic betrayal happens there is harm that is done and that's what we're going to talk about Thank you so much. I really appreciate that um, highlight of, of the social construct that's broken um, and just the, the ubiquitousness of this uh, experience that it's, it's, uh, it doesn't discriminate <laughs> across contexts. And unfortunately, this can often lead to phenomenology like moral injury and complex trauma. And so before we really get into the, the nitty gritty, if you could both um, Dr. Soycheva and Dr. Ford, you know, respectively define what these constructs are, what is moral injury, and, and what is complex trauma and PTSD. I know that there's a little bit of a difference there, too, so if you could both um, sort of elucidate that for the listeners. Sure, yeah. Um, so moral injury, the way that we understand it in, in the literature and clinically these days, today, um, is not a very old construct, actually. It's, it's, um, dates back a few decades ago, and it comes from the military literature as well and combat trauma. Um, we do know now that it's not limited to that population in any way. And we've seen a lot more of moral, moral injury type of presentation as of late because of COVID. And we can get into that later in, in the podcast. But in its, in its, um, in its essence, moral injury is um, a violation or a breakdown of um, somebody's an event or um, somebody witnessing, experiencing, not being able to stop or perpetrating even um, something or a trauma that violates their moral compass, that their deeply held moral beliefs and the sense of suffering that um, that that happens after that, after that violation which is not the same. A lot of times I've seen um, military service members diagnosed with, with post-traumatic stress 
which could very well be the case, but it also misses the moral injury. It, it, it is not a DSM diagnosis, and yet we see it over and over again because these deeply held um, moral ethical standards are violated or the person is unable to prevent something from happening that violates them. In addition to the, um, the kind of moral injury that happens from either violation witnessing or, or, or the inability to prevent something from happening, where, where systemic betrayal comes in is that moral injury can also occur as a result of systemic betrayal, as a result of being part of functioning or being traumatized or being betrayed by a system that you're functioning, functioning in. And it's interesting because some of the research and I believe some of this research comes also from the Boston VA system where um, Dr. Brettlitz has worked a lot on moral injury and moral injury treatment, that there are different consequences. Um, they can overlap sometimes and one type of moral injury does not preclude the other one from having co-occurred. Um, but when it comes to moral injury of perpetration or um, the inability to prevent something bad from happening, it seems like people have a lot more internalizing symptoms for, versus with moral injury related to systemic betrayal, um, it seems like there are different, more externalizing um, anger, a lot of anger we see clinically. Not, again, not that they're mutually exclusive, they're not, but just in terms of um, defining it a little bit better and, and the different presentations and experiences that people have. And then I guess Jillian can speak more to the complex trauma piece. Well, there's a, that's a great segue to complex trauma because there, there's, a, there's quite a strong parallel. Um, although complex trauma does not necessarily involve a, a violation of core values and the moral compass, it often does. Um, and complex trauma, let me just sum it up in, in, in terms of originally we thought it was based on five eyes as in the letter I, and actually we can expand that to 15. So it's intentional interpersonal acts that are inescapable and cause injury. And that may be psychic and is often psychic as well as potentially physical. And the injury is potentially irreparable. So there's another I. The events are intrusive or the acts that cause complex trauma are intrusive. They're often invasive of the body and the self of the individual. And they often involve imminent, another eye, threat or deprivation. And the totality of this results in a sense of, and sometimes the actuality of profound isolation, impulsivity, driven by a sense of desperation, powerlessness, and vulnerability, and a, a, def a deformation of identity, another I, which can include the capacity to integrate one's sense of self, and also the capacity to sustain a sense of personal integrity, which is then a very close parallel to moral injury. And ultimately, it involves a disruption in the capacity for intimacy and interconnectedness. So there's 15 eyes that show you why complex trauma is complex. And I've also identified some of the aftermath of complex trauma because complex trauma can involve, for example, isolation, but very often individuals who've experienced complex trauma then subsequently become more isolated. 
and it can involve impulsive acts in the moment uh, when uh, challenged by extreme threats or extreme an extreme sense of deprivation or harm, but it also often leads to a long-term difficulty with impulsivity as a result of the kind of hypervigilance and self-protective uh, reactivity that occur as some of the aftermath of complex trauma. So complex trauma is both a, a, a set of events and experiences, and it's also a, a, a set of adaptations that can become significantly problematic, but are totally understandable as ways of attempting to protect oneself when one feels fundamentally threatened or deprived. Mm -hmm. And as you're talking about this, Jillian, something that comes to mind is also in, in preparation for this podcast, we, we asked ourselves some questions. And one of the questions was, well, can someone experience moral injury if they haven't necessarily perpetrated or if their own moral standard isn't injured by their own actions or failing to prevent somebody else's actions. And as you're talking about it, what comes to mind is this interesting overlap of complex trauma and moral injury where um, borrowing from the literature on systemic betrayal from, you mentioned Dr. Dr. Freed and one of the, the, it's an acronym that she has, that's DARVO, which is uh, deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. And I think in complex trauma very often, especially in trauma that, that happened in childhood, the person may not have perpetrated a trauma, but if they're told that if this reversal of victim and offender happens and they're told that the trauma happened because something's fundamentally wrong about them, that they invited for example, the sexual assault, that could be a potential avenue, I think, of, a, of an intersection between a moral injury. And when we treat complex trauma, it's interesting and it's important probably to look for that if we're going to look for a moral injury component there too. That's a great point, Valentina. I, I, it brings to mind a, a, a patient, and I, I will never give any specific identifying information, uh, but a patient who told me in, in the process of working through a, a wide range of betrayal traumas over a course of an entire lifespan, that in some ways the, the stage was set when this particular individual was born, they were told by the, their father that they almost killed their mother by the the difficulties that she experienced in the pregnancy and then in childbirth and, and literally came to believe that, that they might actually ha have been the cause of their own mother's death. And subsequently could see how that sense of being a person who could cause harm, even though there was no truth to that whatsoever, that that became a, a, a kind of a, a dominant script for this individual and led to a number of additional trauma, traumatizations that were quite complex, but it all really began with a sense of moral injury. I could have, or almost did kill my own mother. Uh, that's how, how profound it can be. And that's how early it can start. It's not just something that occurs. Of course, uh, as a child, this patient didn't think that consciously until they were able to actually start to put together what this all meant. 
but the actual experience of moral injury and the sense of having almost done or having done something really horrific that completely contradicted their values, that began as early as childbirth. Again, with no memories until fully verbal, but the script was put in motion early. Yeah, absolutely. I, as, you, as you're talking about it, it reminds me I've had a, um, sadly more than one patient that I've worked with who had a particularly abusive parent, for example, who um, who said to them things like, um, if you are a bad boy or a bad girl, I will hurt the animals and, and hurt their pets. And so the narrative becomes one, anything I do could be a bad thing and no matter what I do is right. And then it, it leads, my actions directly lead to injury or damage caused on another living being, on a living being that I care about. So you can start there seeing the complexity of, of psychic changes that happens when these very, very, very ingrained beliefs start being shaped and formed so early on. And you know, these two examples also really highlight how systemic betrayal is not necessarily the result of an institution's betrayal. The caregiving system that is embodied in a single parent, yeah, in, yeah. In an individual parent. And again, not to blame any parent whatsoever, but as caregivers, parents who inadvertently or intentionally subject their children to that kind of experience of, you're, you're bad, you cause terrible things to happen, you, you somehow cause injury or even potentially death, that that caregiving system then is betraying that individual's trust and sense of uh, yeah. ability to be protected. And so right. systemic betrayal really can, can occur on a very, very micro scale. It's not just when large institutions betray the trust of those who are living and working within them. Right. And it can also, um, there could be layers, multiple layers to it. For example, for a person who was assaulted by a priest, but the family was so, um, the, the community and their, their church was such a big part of their lives the child then being um, further victimized by being told that they did something wrong. On the one hand, the system betrays them, fails to take care of them. The larger system, that's the church. And then the smaller system of their family, um, magnifying that trauma, exponentially magnifying it by denying, by not validating, by not supporting, by saying, if you say something then will be pariahs, for example. And, and all of those social psych psychological consequences falling on the shoulders of a small child who's by no means equipped to deal with this kind of um, complex situation and is traumatized on top of that. So and that's yeah. really, I think that's really important too, though. What we're talking about here are the, the complexities and complications that occur when complex trauma occurs in the life of a, of a person. And then that is actually happens in the context of a protective relationship or a set of systems or involvement in a community or institution that either fails to protect, fails to prevent, fails to 
ensure that that individual is not blamed or actually actively engages in victim blaming. So it's, it, the systemic betrayal is not necessarily the trauma itself, but it is a, a massive amplification of an intensification of the adverse effects of the trauma. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you both. It seems like the essence of both moral injury and complex trauma that seems to be um, represented in systemic betrayal is, is, is trust. I'm really hearing that trust in systems and others and in oneself, right? In one's sense of self and whether they are good, whether they can trust their own instincts, whether their reality is real and valid, um, whether they're a monster or not, right? Um, and I'm hearing that just like the wide array of contexts, you know, that this can show up in. And I think, Julian, your um, your reference to the social contract really is like a, a good summation of it, that basically anywhere there's a social construct, the contract, this can occur. Um, and so, you know, I, knowing that there's a broad scope here, who do you see coming in with these experiences and struggles? Well, I've seen, as I said, I've, I've seen adults who experience moral injury as a child <laughs> and then subsequently later in life. I've seen kids in the juvenile justice system who struggle a great deal with moral injury when they do things that are maybe violent, but they do them because they're trying to protect themselves or trying to protect or defend others or stand up for what they believe is wrong. And the, the kind of systemic betrayal that Valentina described that they can lead to more of an acting out and externalizing. You see a lot of that amongst youth who become involved in the juvenile justice system, sometimes adults in the criminal justice system. And that doesn't, that doesn't justify their, their actions if they do harm others or if they violate the social contract but it, it really is a crucial part of their recovery and rehabilitation to be able to actually find a way to address and, and reclaim the values that they violated. And in, indeed, in some ways, moral injury in, in those contexts is a really good sign. It's a healthy sign. It's a very difficult problem, and I don't want to in, in, in any way understate it, but it's a sign that the individual actually has a commitment to some values and recognizes that they have violated that or that, that those values have been violated and they failed to prevent it happening to others. And in that case, that the moral injury can in some ways be the, the seeds or the beginning of recovery. Yeah, I, I really like how you framed that, Julian, because we, we, we strive so hard not to pathologize um, adaptive at the time responses, right? So, um, for example, I work a lot, as I said, with, with military personnel and, and a good starting point sometimes is this overarching engulfing guilt that a lot of military service members come in with guilt and shame and on top of everything, all, all the other post-traumatic stress symptoms that we know and we recognize. Um, but it's interesting because in my clinical work with this population in particular, what we think of as PTSD, what people come in with, um, for example, somebody being in a firefight or somebody, the, the, the traumas that we typically define, those tend to be less impactful. And when we start to unpack um, the person's reactions, their struggles, where they're 
negative thoughts are taking them, where they become the most upset, it's usually some kind of a moral injury type of trauma. It's the loss of a buddy that they couldn't prevent. It's um, having to having to defend themselves and, and kill a child, for example, who's carrying a suicide vest and having to make those decisions of, do I protect my people? If I don't, that goes against my moral code. Also, we don't kill children, we don't hurt children. So that goes against my moral co code and you're in this double bind that you do a it's wrong according to your moral code you do b it's wrong and if you do nothing it's also wrong so there's no way out of the situation and that's something that i see a lot as well um in terms of that um in terms of yeah sexual trauma when when there is a no no protection or no validation i think i really like how amanda framed it as in like to validate that your reality really is real uh, when that's not there. Um, more recently, I've been seeing it a lot with medical personnel, with frontline um, healthcare workers, where especially at the beginning of, of the pandemic, there were a lot of um, very difficult decisions that had to be made, where I think, speaking of the two kinds of whether per perpetration or inability to prevent something from happening, and also the, the, the betrayal by the system, a lot of, a lot of doctors, nurses, PAs, um, had to were, were unable to save their own colleagues who were coding on their tables and um, at the same time not having adequate support from their the systems that not enough PPE um, not enough time off which is understandable in a time of crisis but there were some really real systemic betrayals that were happening especially early on as everyone is struggling to respond to a to a state of emergency so i've seen a lot of that too um yeah i've, I've seen quite a few medical um, professionals basically have to intubate and watch their friends die while their own safety was endangered by the lack of uh, a response of a timely response of the system to, to help protect them so we see, a, I think we're starting to recognize it more. And so as we start to talk about it and recognize what it looks like, we're starting to see it more and be able to, to name it, which is a good starting point to understand why it's there and help people. I've, I've been listening to a, a large number of nurses and other healthcare providers here where, where I work at this health center. And they are, they are telling me exactly what you just described, Valentina, that in so many cases, they, they had to make life and death decisions. They, they couldn't make the perfect decision. They had to go through situations where they could not save people, including their own colleagues at times. Sometimes they, they were experiencing the, the kind of the really multiple layers that involved, for example, one nurse who at the same time that this nurse was working on a unit with COVID patients and experienced a, a good number of, of deaths and, and comforted many families, this nurse's mother was dying of COVID at another hospital. And so the nurse would have to go from working a 12, 14, 16 hour shift, helping people who were experiencing COVID and their families to going to be with the nurse's mother and going through the, the, the personal experience of that loss and the inability to prevent that from happening. I also wanted to mention that, uh, you know, 
you 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 noted that this is not something that just occurs with military trauma or with sexual trauma or child abuse trauma, even though those are really horrific and and poignant examples. In uh, I've seen this in natural disasters. For example, 25 years ago, I was a Red Cross volunteer and working with with a large community that had just been completely shattered by a a horrific set of floods. And one of the encounters that I will most remember always is with a, a man who came, came by the, the mental health section, which typically people avoid like the plague. <laughs> and he said, you know, I don't really like to talk to, to mental health people. In fact, I don't do it at all, but there's something that's bothering me. And in brief, what he told me was that he, he had left his house in the middle of the night. He basically, ran out of his house in the middle of the night because the, there was going to be a massive destruction. And he found himself, and he didn't know quite how much long, how much later, but sometime later, he, he found himself with a group of people who were all in a, in a shelter. And, and he didn't know where his, his wife and his children were. And that was, he said, the worst moment for him. It wasn't when he knew the flood was coming. It wasn't when he knew his house was going to be destroyed, when he was fearful for his life. It was that he had not made sure that his loved ones were safe. And it turns out that actually one of his children was right there with him. And he mm -hmm. said, I didn't even realize that my daughter was standing right beside me. I was in that much shock. And then shortly after that, he said he did finally connect back up with his wife. And he said, you know, I don't know quite what happened. So we talked about the events and I didn't try to do trauma memory processing therapy, but we just talked through the narrative. And it turns out that he and his wife had an agreement that if there was ever an emergency, he would take their daughter and she would take their son and they would both make sure that they, their children were safe and that they found each other. And that was exactly what had happened. And he had completely forgotten that in the midst of the wow. show. And he felt such a sense of guilt and shame, a true moral injury that he had failed his, his responsibility as a father. And this was not because anyone perpetrated anything. This was a, a completely natural disaster. And yet the, the sense of moral injury was so powerful. And I'm sure he's only one of many who have felt that way. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting that you say that it brings up a very um, important point that in trauma work, I keep seeing one of the ways to, you know, I guess the metaphor of a, of a sweater, you pull a, you pull a string and the whole thing comes apart, comes up is that one way to, to help people is also help them understand that uh, unfortunately what they refer to it, what's the core of that moral injury sometimes it's something they do or fail to do in a moment of traumatization. Mm -hmm. So we have this, these ideas that I, I, I say, I've said this to some of my patients that we, none of us can ever um, foresee how we're going to react in a moment of trauma. Are we going to fight? Are we going to flee? Are we going to freeze? Even those of us who work in trauma can't can't predict any of that. We don't know what our body is going to do necessarily based on our histories or so many factors there. But a lot of the times I've seen people describe what I would consider the core of the moral trauma happening at a moment of a traumatization. So somebody froze 
in their own trauma and failed to act, for example. Um, a military service member who um, at the core of, of his trauma was failing to prevent the execution of, of refugees at the time where, where he was in a combat zone. Um, and that was, as you said, there was so much shame and guilt and almost the core self around I'm, I'm rotten as a human being for not being able to do that. And when we started working on it, it turned out that in fact, he was in a freeze response because his life was in danger. He was getting certain orders. He wanted to violate, to disobey these orders in the military, you disobey these orders, you're court-martialed if you even get out of there alive. So there were so many factors there that in the moment of a freeze response, he had failed to act, but he saw this as, I just didn't do it. And it's so important to unpack that when you're working in a clinical situation. I think that really gets back to Amanda's point that so much of moral injury really revolves around a, a, a loss of this, the sense that you can trust in this case, that you can trust yeah. yourself, as well as those who you, you look to for care, support. I, I, I remember a, a, a military veteran, a, a Vietnam veteran who I worked with maybe 30 years ago. And, and the worst moment for him of the Vietnam War was during the Tet Offensive, when he was so terrified that he froze and it wasn't evident necessarily to anyone else but himself, but he literally peed in his pants. And he's, he has, he had a memory of that moment and the sense of, of shame and guilt and just the sense that he could never trust himself and that he must be somehow just a, a person who is just too anxious and too weak to be able to actually be trusted and to, to have any value. On the other hand, I, I remember another military veteran, I won't go on too long about this, but just to show the, the contrast and, and the impact of culture too, which is really profound here because the, the, the values and the social contract that's violated often has a very strong basis in a person's culture, as well as in the larger sense of what's good and bad. So this was a young man who, again, was a Vietnam veteran, and his experience was that he was a sniper. And he is also Native American. And he said, I went into the military because I believed it was my duty as so many brave young men did. Uh, and he said, I was singled out at, at, because I was an Indian to be a sniper. They figured I'd be good at it. And he said, and I was really good at it. He said, I, they, I, they would send me out and I would be in position for hours at a time and I never missed. And he said, but the thing that happened that was really the, the big problem for me, it wasn't the wasn't the shooting, the killing, even though that was something that I believed was absolutely wrong. I believed I was doing it for the right reason. He said, it was when they came and picked me up and I'd be sitting in the back of the truck as we would go back to the base. And all of a sudden my leg would start shaking and it wouldn't stop shaking until I drank enough to just knock myself out. And this was a young man who then, this was like 20 years prior to that time. And he had developed a, a chronic and severe case of alcoholism. And no one had really connected that with PTSD. And he had not connected that with the sense that he had of having violated his values. 
that he performed, he did what he needed to do, he protected his, his colleagues and his team, but he violated some core values and his body would not allow him to just let that go. So that's, that's how profound moral injury can be and how it can, it, it can show up in ways where you think, oh, this is just an individual who has a problem with alcohol, or, or this is just a person who's experienced war trauma. Not that either of those are insignificant, but the real core of this was the moral injury for this young man. Yeah, it's to the core. Yeah, thank you both. I think it really highlights, um, you know, we've been with PTSD, we've been really focused on fear and fear conditioning. And I'm hearing from this conversation how much it's not that, how much like that that's there, but really the thing that keeps people up at night, the thing that disrupts relationships, the thing that disrupts resilience and health is not fear. It's these guilt and shame doubt moments um, across all different types of trauma. And mm -hmm. I really appreciate the example you gave, Julian, of, um, of the veteran you just shared about, because I just wanna make sure we, we acknowledge that systemic betrayal and moral injury and complex trauma absolutely occurs in minority populations. For example, like black people witnessing police violence, and these are systems that are there to protect and serve and save, and they do the complete opposite. And so just wanting to acknowledge that that's really there across various minority identities. Um, and, and yeah, just more populations. There's, there's really no limits to um, or bounds to where um, this can show up. So I know we've been sort of trying to sort of talk about like how these are not pathological, right? These are adaptations to trauma, but how do we know when they become a problem? You know, like this episode is really meant to be for these clinicians who are sitting across from other people that are coming in. So how do we know, how can they know when, when this starts to become a problem, when it's no longer an adaptation? Well, you could start with if there are PTSD symptoms or if there are complex PTSD symptoms. And the complex PTSD symptoms actually, I think, are particularly relevant. I, I do think that sometimes it is just fear. But as you're saying, Amanda, in many cases, what looks like a fear or anxiety reaction is really underneath that, and, and not all that deep if we just are careful enough and listen well enough. It's, it's a sense of fear that is not the result of fear of something external, it's a fear of not being able to trust oneself, or it is external, but it's not a, a, an assault. It's the fear that you will not be protected. And I think that when, when PTSD or complex PTSD starts to take the form of a sense of oneself as fundamentally damaged as a monster or a horrible defective individual, as you said earlier, uh, Amanda, or when it, when it takes the form of relationships where uh, people just cannot seem to allow themselves to feel close or just can't, don't know how to feel close to another individual, even though they know they care about them or to an entire family. When it, it becomes a kind of a distraction and you see so often with kids who have post-traumatic stress reactions, they often take the form of, difficulties with concentration that look like they're just either ADHD or maybe just anxiety or hyperarousal, 
but in many cases, they are a fundamental sense of, I, I don't know who I can trust. I don't know when I'm safe, not because I feel threatened by a particular type of harm, but because I don't feel protected. So I think it's when, when those reactions and that sense of being vulnerable, being sometimes helpless, or at least being unprotected, when those reactions become a, a fundamental basis for the individual wakes up feeling that way and goes through most of the day and most days always on guard, even if performing uh, ex in an external way that seems perfectly adaptive, when they carry that sense that I can never really trust and myself or those who I need to be able to trust, and that then shows up in symptoms of multiple other kinds of disorders. That's when I think we need to say, wait a minute, is this just depression? Is this just substance abuse? Is this just attention deficit or oppositional defiant disorder? It may be, but it may also be that this is an individual who is struggling with a sense of having been injured and not knowing who to trust. Absolutely. And as you were talking, the one thing that also popped up in my head is, you know, we talk about the negative uh, sort of symptoms and, and, and impairments and impacts on someone's livelihood. And it got me thinking also of what's missing. Um, what are some positives that are missing too? And one of my favorite psychologists of the recent past, Winnicott, is talking a lot about play. So when the play is missing, when someone's ability to be spontaneous, so we say anhedonia is a symptom, of, one of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress and depression, et cetera, but it's more than anhedonia. It's this stuckness of, I need to make my world as small as possible to minimize whatever triggers are out there. And only then can I be somewhat okay because I can internally manage the overstimulation internal and external and triggers. So somebody's world becomes so small, they're sacrificing a whole lot. And one of the things that becomes sacrificed, not intentionally or consciously, but is the sense of playfulness, the ability to play, to, to frolic, to be carefree, to, to feel joy, which even if you're able to overfunction in other ways, people become really good at doing their jobs or working really hard and excelling and succeeding. That is a huge sacrifice still to me. That's a great point, Valentina, and it it kind of it it highlights the the one of the really fundamental challenges of moral injury, which is wherever you go, there you are. Yeah. And if you're the one who failed to protect or prevent, or you're the one who did something that caused harm that violates your values, or you're the one who was helpless in the face of those kinds of events that that just completely violate the social contract, it becomes the, it, it becomes the sense that it's not necessarily anything external, it's that it's always me. Yeah. Wherever I go, bad things happen and I don't prevent it or I may even cause it. Mm -hmm. And that kind, that sense that I'm the enemy, we have met the enemy and it is us, as Pogo said, that's that's no joke. That is a very, very serious and difficult challenge. And I think as clinicians, we just really need to appreciate how much that can play a role when 
we may otherwise be focusing more on ensuring that the that a, a patient or a patients feel a sense of safety in their external life and that's important but if their sense of internal safety is fundamentally compromised because they feel they cannot trust themselves or they have violated the values that they hold dear to extent to an extent that they cannot accept themselves that's then an additional complication that I think we have to be prepared to deal with in, in doing good treatment. Right, this reminds me actually of a, a patient I, veteran I worked with who whose moral injury was around um, the death of a child uh, while serving in Iraq. And, um, you know, he was really struggling with, with feeling that he deserved to be a father. Um, you know, I, I'm remembering a session where he was sharing being at a play zone with his child and feeling, seeing the other fathers with their children and seeing how free and joyful that they were and really feeling that he did not deserve to be there, you know, that he didn't deserve to have access to the play um, because of what he did. So there's this sort of making amends through continued suffering theme that I've noticed in moral injury. Um, and I think both of your points really sort of get at this, the lack of lightness, the lack of space and freedom. Exactly. And you know, right. that for that, for that individual or anyone in that situation, it's, it's also that this is where moral injury and complex trauma really do intersect in a, in a powerful and, and very problematic way, because I don't know for sure, but I would wonder whether that, that man, when he was with his child or with other children, whether he might not be simultaneously not having a flashback necessarily, although that could happen, but literally would have a hard time seeing those children today without seeing that child whom he harmed. And that sense that I can never, never be free from that. And that I somehow have to carry the burden of that, that child and that child's death, even if it means superimposing that on my experience now with my own child. That's, that's a really complex clinical challenge, but it also reflects an individual who has such a commitment to the value of not harming children and caring for children. And that's one of the things that I've found that is really important. Often individuals who have the most severe difficulty with moral injury or with complex trauma reactions, it's because they care the most. And they, they really do hold the values more strongly than, than, than I do. Than, than most people do. And again, I'm not suggesting that there's always a silver lining, but I think there's often underneath the injury or the complex trauma reactions, there's often a, a capacity to care and to hold true to values that then gets really distorted in the sense that I don't deserve it and I have to somehow make, a, make reparations for the rest of my life by suffering. Yeah, absolutely. Um... It got me thinking about those exactly those people that you're talking about, Julian, and how often I've heard, not only do I deserve to have a kid, but I am so scared that I'll repeat the trauma. Right. Because I never thought I would ever be capable of doing anything like this. And yet here we are. Mm -hmm. And um oftentimes the person who suffers so so much end up being a very doting and caring parent, by the way, because that is on their mind all the time. Uh, not that if it wasn't, they couldn't be a doting and caring parent, but the, the, the terror that I've heard people um, 
express an experience of can I be an okay parent? Can I be loving and caring towards my child if I carry all of this um, terror and shame? And will I victimize them? Will I be an okay dad or mom if I suffered what I suffered? How can I, does it, does it stop with me? Can I stop it? Or am I just a conduit of the trauma and it's going to keep getting perpetrated? I think that's a really um, important thing to address in, in therapy. It comes up a lot, but I also know that there needs to be a, a really safe environment in the therapy for it to come up, for people to, to feel okay to say it. Because they're judging themselves so harshly, they expect that everyone else, including us as therapists, will judge them. And sometimes you, they don't even know that fully themselves on a conscious level. Yeah. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And many times they don't want to ever let out that they do know that. And I've seen that both with parents who are incredibly kind, protective, caring, and, and go to extremes to do that because they're trying so hard not to replicate what's happened to them or what they believe they've done that's caused harm. But I've also seen it happen tragically with parents and other caregivers who shut themselves off from any emotional connection with their child or their children or are very harsh because they're trying so hard to make sure that their child doesn't turn into them or doesn't end up doing things like they've done or doesn't make the mistakes that they've made that would make their child vulnerable to somebody who might harm them. So sometimes the, the harshest and apparently least caring parents are actually those who yeah. are suffering this kind of moral injury and complex trauma reaction. And they're just trying to prevent the terrible things from happening again, but they're doing it in ways that, of course, uh, replicate exactly some of the, the, the tragic experiences they've had. Right. They recreate the abandonment for their children. In some ways. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, um, this comes from the military literature, but clinically thinking, I'm pretty sure it probably general, generalizes to other populations too, but one of the, the um, most significant predictors of um, sort of family dissolution and, and breakdown in, in post-traumatic stress for military personnel is not the, what we think of aggression or what the movies present scandalously as PTSD. Um, it's the isolation and the withdrawal. That is the, the most significant pathway to um, sort of like a breakdown of the family system. And I bet you, if we looked at those, those people, that's a moral injury core. Um, of, the, of, the, of what's a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress would be my guess. I think this really gets at the existential nature in these constructs that these people are uniquely caring and bearing witness to the fact that we all have the capacity within us to do harm and to actually have experienced and witnessed and been involved in that truth is a, requires a great deal of maturity and responsibility to carry that truth. A lot of us get to go through life without really confronting our own capacity to harm in, in these ways. And so I really just appreciate the, the existential nature of this and the importance of being able to hold space to allow a person to 
really reflect on this truth and sort of eventually come to the realization that not, none of us are wholly good or bad. It's, it's just choice in a lot of ways, right? It's choice over how, how we behave and, and what our values really are. Um, and I know like, you know, recognizing that everything is like with treating trauma is so very personalized and there's so many factors to consider. I'm wondering if you could both sort of share a little bit of your thought process on how clinicians might start to work with these um, challenges. You know, what are the things that you consider in determining where to start, what treatment ingredients might be helpful, you know, what the trajectories might be. And I just want to acknowledge this is a big complex question. So please feel free to leave it big and complex rather than uh, simplifying it in any way. Valentina? Oh, we're going to leave it big and complex. <laughs> I don't think we're going to tease that apart, but um, <laughs> I, I think for me, the, the pathways can differ uh, because as you said, everything is very individualized, but initially at least, um, I, I think creating trust within the therapeutic relationship is really fundamental because someone who comes in with post-traumatic stress with complex trauma with moral injury with systemic betrayal well i'm the system so i'm a system now in their life um so i think we need to come in with a lot of honesty i think we need to not oversimplify at the very beginning we need to try not to fix um, again these are just suggestions this is not a formula this is how i view things but we all do this work because we want to help, but sometimes we want to help and we want to it, seeing someone really in the grips of so much suffering can really tug at our, at our heartstrings and we want to alleviate the pain quickly. We want to fix, we want to help, we want to um, comfort and creating a safe space for exploring these difficult emotions and comforting are not the same thing. Um, much as we might feel drawn to say, Oh, it wasn't your fault. That, that, that rings shallow a lot of the times in these very complex situations. So sometimes we, we need to show ourselves as um, human beings, as um, being able to meet the person where they are in the ugliness of what they're feeling um, to create a sense of trust. And only there, I've worked with a lot of people where the actual trauma work, the moral injury work didn't start until a year after they were in therapy because there was so much ambivalence. They, they left, they came back. They, they wanted to make sure I'm going to be here. They wanted to make sure that when they brought out all the difficult stuff and then didn't show up for a couple of weeks, I'm still going to follow up and say, Hey, are you here? I'm here that they didn't scare me. They didn't terrify me. Um, that I wasn't going to give up on them. So there's a lot of that. And I think the second piece is really empowerment from the beginning. Also, I'm not going to control anyone's emotions and behaviors. I'm not going to prescribe behaviors. Um, somebody coming from this kind of situation is already coming with so much um, disempowerment that I think our role is more so to help them manage and regulate rather than coming as an external savior, rescuer, regulator or anything of of that nature. And that's just the beginning. So Julian, I'll give it to you. So I can stop rambling. Oh, that's a great starting point, Valentina. I mean, that, that building the relationship and, 
and allowing the individual to do the testing that is necessary in order to determine if there really is a basis for attachment security sounds just exactly right and ex exactly what we need to think about. If, if, if I could do 10 sessions and have everything all set or 15 sessions, I would love to do that. And, and yet I think that it, it is more complicated than that, just as you're saying. So I, I have a couple of things that I've learned over the years to try to practically put into effect the, those two wonderful considerations that, you're, that you named, the, the relationship and the empowerment. The first is that I, I as much as I, I need to develop a diagnosis for quality assurance and reimbursement purposes, I try to put the diagnosis aside in my actual thinking about and, and talking with the, the individual with whom I'm doing therapy. And the first thing that I think is important is to just create a space where that individual or that, that couple or that family can tell me their story and literally talk about their life experiences. Now, by this, I don't necessarily mean a year, although it could take a year. Uh, it, it can also be done in a matter of a, just a session or two to begin with, not completely, but to just show genuine interest. And, and frankly, that is why, uh, other than wanting to be of some help to people who have suffered, that the, one of the main driving forces for me is in being a therapist still after all these years is that I'm really interested in the life stories of the people I work with because they're always so complex and so they're, they're so moving and, and they're important. And, and very often people don't think of their own life stories as having any importance or any value. And I think it's a really unique experience to be listened to by somebody who truly finds meaning and sees connections amongst events that you hadn't thought of. So I look for that and I don't always point that out, but I hold that information and sometimes I will share that. And as we build, as we co-create a narrative, uh, largely coming from the patient, then I think the other thing that's really important when working with moral injury and complex trauma is to be able to actually help the individual or the couple or the family to identify, and it takes some time, it's not like answer a question and, and then you're all set, but to over time to figure out what is it that they're trying to find out about themselves that they need to know in order to be able to live with themselves. And, and this does not mean arguing with them that they were a good person and they didn't mean to do what they did and that they shouldn't feel bad about it. No, I'm not talking about that because that's not real true cognitive restructuring. Instead, it's really helping them to identify ways in which they held the values that were so important to them, but they couldn't live up to them perfectly or they even failed to live up to them in some important ways, but they cared about that and they felt the impact of that failure. They didn't just ignore it. it. It didn't fail to concern them, even if the concern was expressed by their body and not, not consciously. And as we co-create that narrative of their life and figure out what they're looking for and understanding their experience, that I think really provides a, a, a very strong basis for doing trauma memory processing. And for going back and looking at events that are specifically traumatic or where there was profound moral injury, they did things or didn't do things that they feel violated their values. I think if we know and 
our patients know what they're looking for. And of course, this gradually evolves. It's not something you find all together at one moment. It's an, it's an evolving process of figuring out what I'm looking for. And what is the narrative that actually I can live with? Again, not to make anything better than it was, not to make excuses, not to try to reassure people or just falsely build up a sense of self-esteem, but literally to help the individual figure out what is the life story that consistent with my values that has meaning. And that includes my failures or my mistakes or even terrible things that I've done. With that, I think then we've got a really wonderful launch pad for doing any number of evidence-based treatments for PTSD, for complex PTSD, for, for other disorders as well. And in the midst of that, then we're going to be addressing the complex trauma and the moral injury and not, not leaving that aside or treating that as something separate, but it's more, it's really the foundation for the rest of the therapy. Right. And we're going to be also addressing the behaviors that currently might be problematic or causing worry traumatization. But if, when you put it in that context that you just outlined so beautifully, Julian, it, it helps, um, it helps restructure not just the thinking process and it helps restory the narrative, but also um, begin living in a way that's consistent with how I want to live in a non and, and create that ability to do that in a non judgmental safe space. Thank you both. I think this is really beautiful. And it seems like themes are definitely around patients not having an agenda high value on the therapeutic relationship as a safe container first and really letting that person and their nervous system settle in to that space in a way that feels trusting. Um, I'm actually reminded of this uh, Hakomi therapy and they sort of use the phrase assisted self-study. And I, I'm sort of thinking about that, Julian, when you're talking about co-creating the space and really that's what we're doing, right? We're not here to fix anybody. I think Julian, you've said in the past, you're not trying to prescribe forgiveness, which I love, <laughs> uh, but just sort of this, you're here to assist this person in studying themselves and to study the narratives that are there and the wounds that are there and to help them rewrite through patience and work and collaboration and intimacy with the, with the therapist, you know, what, what the new narrative can be. You know, I'm, I'm wondering too, as we're talking about this, what are some of the systemic challenges you both face as clinicians in treating people with these struggles? A, you got to have a diagnosis. B, you got to do an evidence-based treatment. C, you got to do it as rapidly as possible because you, you really shouldn't be continuing the therapy past a certain point where it's clinically indicated, none of which do I think is really very helpful. Uh, of course, diagnoses are important and evidence-based treatments are really wonderful tools and not prolonging a process beyond the point where it's helpful, that, that's absolutely right. But I think that those, those three challenges are ones that I face all the time. And I, and I think they are systemic challenges that most of us face in one way or another. And I think we can work around it. I, I, no, nothing that I've said, nothing that Valentina said, nothing that you've said, Amanda, suggests that we shouldn't be thoughtful about diagnosis or use evidence-based treatments when and if and as they are helpful and make sure that our treatment is as timely 
and uh, it does not foster a sense of dependency like we're the therapist who is going to save this person and they have to always rely on us forever and ever but i think that there is a there, there's a fine line between doing too much of that and not doing enough and those are the challenges that i've faced very yeah i mean very little to add here <laughs> Um, you you outlined them pretty well. I, I think the issue with the medical model when it comes to mental health is that um, everything that you said, Julian, and it just get, it, it it gets me thinking about the val what we place our value, what our priorities are. Um, the priorities, as they're seen by the medical model, as applied here, is symptom relief as per a checklist, which is designed by people. <laughs> Um, symptom relief on a PCL5 does not necessarily mean that the person has a good life, that they've repaired their relationships, that their occupational functioning is that much better. Um, they may not have panic attacks anymore. They may not have flashbacks. Their sleep may be improved and any number of things, but it does not guarantee uh, healing. And so that those are some of the, at a conceptual level challenges that I feel for myself, what's the expectation that person's gonna have a lowered PCL score, not, not clinically significant anymore, and so they're healed versus what I know as a human being, as a clinician, are major areas of their life that they, they want to and they can improve. And insurance saying, well, you have 12 sessions to do this or workman's comp is done. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, it's difficult to navigate. And then also you are a representative of the system in some ways when you work within a healthcare system. So you are the person who has to deliver the news. We have a limited amount of time or we need to discontinue soon or we need to do X, Y, and Z. We need to do a space treatment when I might not think it's indicated yet because the trust in the relationship is is not there yet or because the person doesn't feel safe enough yet and the risk of a of dropout is high at that stage. Um, of course, I can't know that for sure, but as a clinician, we start to gauge these things, hopefully better as time goes by. Um, I think that's a challenge as being representatives of that system and also being the, the professional that's helping them in their assisted self-exploration. <laughs> And I'll just add a, 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 a couple of subtle challenges, which are not from a particular system or institution or pressure, but it's more from a, the larger sense that in, in across many societies, and it varies specifically based on culture, of course, but there, there's often a, an emphasis if you've been harmed or if you've caused harm that as you said, Amanda, that you have to somehow forgive yourself or someone else, that you, you have to mindfully accept whatever your experience is now, and that you have to find closure, that you have to somehow find a resolution to the dilemmas or the distress that you're experiencing. And while I think that all three of those are extremely important and, and really wonderful things when they happen, I think that they are, they are ends and not means, and they are the possible outgrowth of recovery where forgiveness may become possible. But in my experience, it's not always the case that forgiveness is either possible or necessary or healthy. 
because there are some situations and experiences where it's just not really possible to forgive, but you can understand and you can make a decision as to how you carry forward in your life, knowing that something terrible and unforgivable has happened, even if you've done it. And similarly, mindfulness is not always possible. Uh, it's, even though we'd like to be non-judgmental and accepting, I, I found that in many cases, it's important for people to continue to have some degree of, of self-criticism. And I don't prescribe it, I, but I don't judge it and not accept it. I try to be mindful and accepting that sometimes people will continue to be hard on themselves, but they can constantly have a, a, another stream of thought and can be open to the other possibility, which that is that they are actually doing things that deserve a great deal of credit or at least appreciation and respect. And that closure is not something that's ever, uh, it's, it's not a clear cut construct. It's not well-defined. And one person's closure is different from another's and closure typically is not uh, 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 happily ever after. It may be the ability to feel joy, as you were saying, Valentina, but it's not necessarily a, a closing of the, the sense of sadness or loss or regret or even shame, but it's a, a sense of being able to live with those feelings. Very so well said, that's where the society can, uh, or, or larger social sociological phenomena can create a, some pressures on us as therapists and on our patients that we have to achieve certain things or, or that the right way to do it is by doing things very well, grieve well, forgive well, be mindful, as opposed to finding ways where forgiveness may be possible, where grieving happens and can be supported and, and where mindfulness is something that you draw from because you, you feel safe enough and able to actually focus on what you're experiencing. Absolutely, I think that over over um, reliance on an individualized model really conveniently leaves the system out of taking any responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. And these are inherently interpersonal wounds. And so how can we expect a person to heal from an interpersonal wound within just themselves? It has to be in relation. It has to be in community. It has to be within the system even. And so I just, it's really convenient, you know, that the systems put that, that pressure um, and that, that blame saying, this is your individual problem and you need to fix it rather than sort of recognizing their own role in both the etiology and the recovery of it. You know, I, I think that also makes me think one, one additional challenge I'd like to just briefly acknowledge is the legitimacy of these constructs by the system. You know, I know that uh, both moral injury and complex PTSD have been fighting for quite some time to be acknowledged as valid syndromes and diagnoses that, that warrant treatment, that warrant different treatment and more space. And so just acknowledging that that's still very true in many systems. Some are sort of more willing to acknowledge than others, but that that's something that we're, we're still battling with as well. Um, and just, I guess I'm curious now, you know, that we've talked a lot about the various kinds of traumas that can happen when working um, with these groups and it, it can be heartbreaking and graphic in nature really. And there's definitely a risk for burnout and vicarious traumatization, um, especially with the added systemic challenges. And so I'm wondering for the clinicians who are listening to this, if you could um, 
sort of just share a little bit about how you hold the work um, yourself, sort of what domains do you notice seem to be affected by this work and how do you sort of take care of that? Well, I'm reminded of a book, which I will probably get the title wrong, but I think it was Eat, Pray, Love. And, <laughs> so travel uh, is what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, what I was thinking was, of course, we all know that it's it's really important to have a healthy lifestyle. Um, and none of us can do that perfectly, especially when we have a lot of, uh, when we're trying to do a lot to help a lot of people and when we're constantly brought back to the work. But that, that still is important. I swim every day or run, um, and, but I use that as a time to, to actually reflect. And I think that probably the most important thing for me in keeping me in the field and keeping me able to, to still sit and listen and actually be interested and care about the people who I'm, I'm talking with and listening to is that uh, I, I'm constantly learning. Um, and I learn from each patient. I, I learn as I, as I read and I try to read uh, trashy novels, but I also try to read some really wonderful things, uh, works on theology, on ethics, uh, on philosophy, um, not to get into the, the, the details, but to really extract some of the, the key principles. That's why I, I also read Shakespeare, uh, because that's he's the greatest psychologist that I know of. Um, I thought that was Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, <laughs> well, the, the Tao of Winnie the Pooh is also right as well. So uh, again, no prescriptions, but I think it, it's the it's the continuing sense that you you have more to learn, and that that learning is in itself a great value, and that you can then translate that learning into something that might be helpful to another human being. 100% agree with everything you said. If there's one more thing that I would add for myself, it's um, I'd say peer support. Um, we hope for this and we try to teach our patients about the dangers of isolation. And we, I think we need to model that for them as well, that nobody faces trauma alone. Um, we heal in relationships. So we help our patients heal in, in a relationship. And I think we need our own in order to stay sane, in order to stay grounded and balanced. And um, I, I think, of course, you know, people have different thresholds of what uh, the appropriate amount of social interaction is for them. There are introverts and extroverts. As, as two years of, uh, of, of lockdown has taught us, we, we all know ourselves a lot better now um, in that area. But I think uh, striking a balance between all of these things that you said, Julian, um, healthy lifestyle exercise time to reflect thirst for knowledge they're all extremely important and also when to be social and when not to be social learning learning more about yourself as well i i would suggest that therapists at least at some points in their life are in their own therapy so they know what it's like to be on the other side um, as well and yeah support there's a very wonderful book by uh Sebastian Younger called Tribe. It's a it's a it's a tiny little book. He was uh, a Rolling Stones reporter, I believe, who was embedded um, in one of the Marine units in the first invasion of Iraq. And so he's he, he's written extensively. But Tribe, especially, is a very um, a study on how people faced with different traumas when they do it when they go through them within a community have so much of, of a better outcome.
uh, ment mental health wise, because they just didn't go through it alone and their experience was validated. And so our experiences as the holder, as the container, um, also need to be validated that this is hard by our peers who do some of the same things. So that, that would be my little addition there. Absolutely. Uh, there's been some recent research on this topic too, looking at moral injury and PTSD and um, a tribe in, I think, somewhere in Africa and just sort of seeing the different uh, phenomenology of PTSD and moral injury when um, war is really woven into the cultural practices and that the tribe collectively shares the responsibility of what happens during war, including killing and grief and, you know, mistakes and different things like that. And so the entire community holds that. Um, so it's not just the individual. Uh, so with our final question, I'm wondering if you two could maybe just talk a little bit about um, what domains, um, you know, Julian, you mentioned theology a little bit here in philosophy, but what, what are the psychological domains like spirituality or morality that you think are especially important for clinicians to do some self-inquiry or develop competency around when working with these populations? If I could add one more um, to spirituality and morality, I think also unconscious biases. We all have them. Uh, we all have grown up and were conceived and raised within certain cultures and certain belief systems. So exploring and continuously examining those, I think, is extremely important. And since Valentina suggested such a wonderful book uh, that put me in mind of, of two that I, I treasure and have to keep going back to. And one was written by a, a, a priest, Thomas Merton. And it's actually a collection of his letters called The Hidden Ground of Love. And that kind of spiritual inquiry that he went through while he was also having beers with his friend and having really good social relationships too, which is a great example of what Valentina was saying. And then in, from a whole different culture, another, another example that I think is really, really crucial is a book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Uh, by uh, a Roshi named Suzuki. And those two examples, I think, reflect, it's, there's no particular, particular genre or area that I would recommend, but more to, to read when, or watch movies or find plays that explore these profound moral questions. I think that's the thing that, that I think is most important that grows out of our conversation today. If we're going to help our, our patients encounter these kinds of moral dilemmas, I think we have to have lots and lots of examples of how people have struggled with these same kinds of moral challenges. And I think those examples are, are out there if we look for those kinds of books, movies, plays, music, that really helps us think through what the moral challenges are. Absolutely. What you're, I, I refer to that as soul expansion. It's what, what will help you expand your soul, expand your, enrich your, your core being so that you can be present then and, and, and work with people. This may be a good way of ending, but um, as, as, since we're recommending books, <laughs> um, 
when you were saying when you were talking about the the hidden um, ground of love was that did I get that right? Um, the book of joy. I, I figured it might be a good place to end with joy, but I could I very highly recommend that book. It's uh, a, a week of conversations between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu um, that was recorded and transcribed. And it's a discussion on the nature of joy. It's not just about joy, it's, it's about connection, but it's also about trauma. Um, and remaining connected through trauma and forgiveness and being able to move forward as well. So um, I think from, from both ways, we, we can get really steeped into trauma work and not know how to get out of it. I think it's important to get out of it and talk about the joy, the forgiveness, the, um, even though we're not prescribing forgiveness, as you said, but also the how to be better human beings ourselves and more open and more present. And so that would be, I think, really important. And personally, I, I try not to be a better human being because I never, I never <laughs> succeed. <laughs> I, just try to, I just try to live with myself and, and if possible, be somebody that others can live with too. And th there are lots of people who think that's not the case, but if there are a few who think that it is, then I'm, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both for this completely wonderful, very rich discussion. I feel like our listeners probably have a lot to reflect on. Um, so I just want to thank you both for your time and um, expertise on this topic and being willing to share your thoughts about these, these challenging um, constructs that that require holding a lot of different aspects and a lot of different points in your mind. Um, and I'm sure that, um, yeah, everyone will be much better after hearing this podcast episode. So um, for the listeners, if you found this conversation interesting and you'd like to learn more, please do consider joining the Moral Injury and or Complex uh, Trauma SIGs for ISTSS. And also feel free to keep listening to Trauma Talk episodes. And yeah, thank you both so much for your time. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right, Holly, I think we're done.